for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think. Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Here we are, another episode of Brew Strong. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> it is morning, which is unusual because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, usually we're not not quite sober by this time. Right, yeah, I'm usually just kind of coming off. <laughs> Come off the previous night. Yeah, but uh, today we're climbing on early. Yeah, yeah, we're... <laughs> Justin's like, hey, you know, what, what would you like to, to drink? Yeah, I got coffee, I got some cranberry juice, I got, you know, <laughs> like yeah. a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> He's like, okay, we know where you guys roll. Yeah, yeah well, no, not uh, out of hand, but, you know, a little, little bit of a uh, lubrication for the show never hurts. That's right, you know, you, you refresh ourselves with a small hops in the morning and uh, yeah. puts the proper frame of mind, you know. A little racer five this morning going going Excellent. on down. Uh, yes, quite quite uh, quite nice uh, hoppy IPA from uh, Bear Republic. Yeah, I, I love their beers. I, yeah, good stuff. And we're we're here live in Pacheco in the in the fine studios in Pacheco mm-hmm. on a relatively sunny morning today, as opposed to yeah. previous. Yeah, uh, and studio temperature is is fine. Mm-hmm. Not sweaty. Not cold. Uh, just yeah. great. So uh, we are live, and this show is always done live. And uh, you can join in the chat room, and uh, you can listen live and chat with other uh, listeners uh, as far as uh, you know the show and and other interests, and uh, ask questions. Uh, that will answer hard at the ones, end of the yes. show. Yeah, even the harpets. And uh, to get to that, you go to the brewingnetwork.com. There's a a, a button for uh, chat. Uh, and join in the chat, and a button for a listen live, and there's even a button to go to the store. That's and right. in the store right now, you're going to find uh, a few quality items. One is uh, Brewing Classic Styles. That's the book that John and I wrote. Uh, with, signed uh, by both of us. Signed by both of us. Also, your excellent book, uh, How to Brew. Which uh, I, uh, is that you, you've signed those, and those are signed in the store. The place you can, you can buy them. That's right. Signed by the author, and that's that's a great book. That's one. Uh, I always feel like I've, I always feel like there's really not a whole lot of value added to my signature in the book, but. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, if like yeah. I should get like a multicolored stamp or something to jazz it up, but, but they're signed anyway. So if, yeah, I if you thought, like that well, sort of thing. Well, now the book's not new anymore. I've signed it. It's like <laughs> it'll have yeah. to sell at the discount table, yeah. and uh, even even better. I mean, I like the books, but I'm really excited about the new Bruce Strong shirts. Yeah, those are sweet. If you're listening live, you know, uh, take a moment, click on that, check out the new Bruce Strong shirts. Great logo, great artwork. Uh, Justin's had done. They're in gray and in red. So you have, actually have options. Those are nice. That's nice. Yeah. Those are some sweet looking shirts, and uh, people have already ordered them. So they're going to go fast again. I don't know how many Justin ordered, but it always seems never quite enough. So if you want one, jump on it real quick and uh, and get them because they'll they'll go. Um, and uh, you'll be going. Oh, I couldn't get that. You know, Jamil, I'm think, I was just thinking that uh, maybe to add a little more value to the to the brewing classic styles or how to brew books. Maybe if you and I, you or I actually put some bodily fluids in it. Well, yeah. actually spilled some beer on each on a couple pages. I mean, you know, yeah. given that, you know, like we actually used that copy. Hey, that's that's a good way to get rid of all the damaged books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say, oh, that was on purpose. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Signing books, uh, you never know what accidents will occur. And, uh, mm-hmm. nah, no, no damaged books. Okay. Yeah, we always take care of those. Well, today we are talking about hot side aeration. That's right. Hot side aeration, um, you know, oxidation processes in beer. Flavor stability. Yep. And, and how, especially, you know, hot side aeration, how, how that impacts flavor stability. stability, And, uh, you know, that that's one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people, when they go, uh, all all grain brewers, when they when they switch from uh, extract with steeping grains, one of the things that you're always told is, oh, you know, don't, don't stir your mash too much. Oh, be careful when you're sparging all this stuff. Oh, you're yeah. going to add, you're going to add uh, air to it. It's going to oxidize. It's going to ruin your pump? beer. Oh, my God. You know, it's going to, you know, your beer's going to, you know, stale faster, things like that. Yeah, pumps, uh, people just totally freaking out. And I'm, right. I've always been of the opinion, well, you know, I'm a little bit cautious, but I don't really care. You know, it's going to be okay. Just don't don't go wild. Don't uh, don't uh, whip out the egg beater and uh, you know froth it up and you know things like that. It, it's going to work out all right. Yeah. So uh, a lot, a lot of question, you know, especially when you when you get into, I guess when you start talking to professional brewers and all the all the care they seem to take with you know every step step of the process, and you read the journals and you you see you know whole articles on lipoxygenase and you know oxygen uh, ends and enzymes that add oxygen to the beer and can you know staling reactions that could occur downstream and so on and i guess it, it really raised the question for a lot of brewers you know how significant is this is it something that we have to be aware of or is it one of those little esoteric things that goes on in the background but you know kind of like uh i don't know uh, you know some other natural phenomena like uh you know, rainstorms in the Himalayas that, or a butterfly flapping in the Himalayas that really doesn't affect us. And uh, so I think that's where today's show, we're really going to help nail down some of those things and uh, give everybody a better idea of what's really important when it comes to hot side aeration and oxidation and flavor stability. Can you give us a brief definition of what hot side aeration is? Well, hot side aeration is kind of considered uh, to be... Um, mash uh processes that occur before the wort is chilled to go in the fermenter so things that occur say during the mashing and and laudering uh processes um and and any transfers that you're doing of the beer at the time people are concerned about it in terms of uh rims and herm system when they're pumping wort around you know recirculating wort through the vessels you know it's like uh oh it looks like i've got an air leak in one line and there's you know mm-hmm. yeah, air bubbling in and uh and and in my book i mean i i took great pains you know years ago when i wrote it to say you know don't aerate when you're uh when you're stirring your mash mm-hmm. you know don't don't froth it and uh see that's where people got that old nonsense idea of, you yeah. know worrying about that well you know i'm reading and it says that this happens <laughs> right, so right. but you know so, the fact that it happens doesn't mean that it's terribly important so so basically anything from when you're you're doughing in for you all grain brewers, when you're adding that that grain to your to your water, your water, your grain for the mash, to when you're bef- before you, you you get to the boil point, right? Anything in between there, that's hot side aeration. That's right. And, and, that's, and if that's you're that's an extract we're brewer about. and trying to dissolve dry malt extract into water, and it's you know clumping, and you're taking a, a whisk mm-hmm. to break it up and mm-hmm. get that stuff to to declump and dissolve in, you're saying you're thinking, oh no, I've just added air right, to my right. my hot word i think that was bad 
So, so the, the question's always been, and people use like Budweiser. Oh, well, they have this sheet thing with the the hot word they and all this. Hot air and, right, it, and they yeah. bubble air through it, and all this stuff, you know, being being an issue as far as uh, you know hot side air. And so, so it's been an ongoing argument uh, amongst the the internet and homebrew community, and even the craft brewer, right? Uh, that you know. This is an issue or isn't an issue. People have problems. People experience problems. People don't. So, uh, what we've done is uh, you you talked to one of the foremost brewing scientists in the in the world. Yep, I um, I talked to uh, a guy I've known uh, casually for several years, um, Dr. Charlie Bamforth. He okay. is a professor at UCSD, and uh, he is one of the few brewing scientists that have really studied all aspects of oxidation and you know mm-hmm. all through the process so he's right. he's uh, was kind enough to join us and uh, help us help walk us through all these different topics all right what we'll do we'll take a, a short break and uh when we come back uh we've got a great interview that john did with uh, charlie vanforth and i think it really uh explains a lot and puts uh, a lot of these questions to rest and we'll we'll uh We'll find out more about hot side aeration, all the scientific stuff about it that, that you guys can geek out over. And uh, we'll be back back in a minute after this. This is Brew Strong. Hey, Push, the new brewery's looking good. Thanks, Finn. Piece by piece. Well, let's fire up. Whoa! Is that a new kettle? Yeah, just got it brand new, but paid half price. What? And that blade scale? 40% off. The new tap handle? Five bucks instead of 13. Got a new regulator for the brew stand, too, but five bucks instead of 25. Dude, where are you stealing all this stuff from? Where else? The more beer deal of the day. Announcing the Beer, Beer, and More Beer Deal of the Day. Every day, a new fantastic deal from big items to small that will blow you away. Boil kettles, carboy carriers, sterile siphon starters, digital timers. Watch morebeer.com every day for a new deal, and you just might find the item you've been waiting for at a price you cannot believe. Hurry, because stock is limited on most items. And that sweet Guinness cap, let me guess. The The More Beer beer Deal deal of the day. Day. Yeah, I knew it. Come on, let's brew something. Find the More Beer Deal of the Day at morebeer.com. Celebrity Voices Impersonated. What have you gotten out of a vial of White Labs yeast? WLP 001. Cal Ale, baby. 23, Burton Ale. 008, East Coast Ale. Cal Common. WLP 810. It's going to be WLP 400 with beer. I got a sweet hoodie for my vial. Huh? White Labs, your source for great brewer's yeast, would like to invite all homebrewers to join the White Labs Customer Club. Redeem your empty vials for great White Labs merchandise and products. Free yeast, glassware, t-shirts, baseball caps, sweatshirts, polo shirts, and you won't believe what you'll get for 5,000 vials. Members also receive a newsletter packed with White Labs updates and facts, interviews with professional brewers, brew your own clone recipes, beercook.com recipes, and customer club stories. The White Labs Customer Club. Save your vials and get in the club. White Labs. It's all in the vial. Live. 
Radio. The Brewing Network. The Brewcasters. If you're just starting, don't be discouraged by all this stuff. It's exactly. so easy. Just throw it yeah. together. Put yeah, some sugar and some water and some yeast in there. Yeah. Network. <laughs> Like the Lance Armstrong of the beer world. Except for that nut thing. This is Bruce Strong. We're back. We're talking hot side aeration, flavor stability. Uh, oxidation. Oxidation. John uh, has uh, done an interview with uh, Charlie Bamforth. Now, yeah. uh, tell us about Charlie. Well, yeah, we've got a real special sh- real special show today. Um, yeah, talking to the microphone, that helps. That, that, that would help, yeah. Um, yeah, Dr. Dr. Charlie Bamforth, he's one of the foremost brewing scientists in the world. And uh, he is the chair of the Food Science and Technology Department at UC Davis. I uh, went to UC Davis. Oh, you did? My alma mater. Well, did you take any brewing classes? No. Hmm. Well, a lot of, lot of organic chemistry. And, oh, that's, uh, that's good. Chemistry and all yeah. my undergraduate work was uh, O-Chem major. Ah. Uh. I never took any organic. I wish I had. But uh, anyway, believe but, me, you don't. You don't wish. <laughs> well, maybe you do. Yeah, but it would help me. You know, when I talk to uh, these these actually very learned people like uh, Dr. Bamforth. But you don't um, consider me learned. Oh yeah, you too. I, I Thanks. you. Thanks. I, I I include you and Justin <laughs> in the same breath. Yeah, that's like damning with faint praise. <laughs> I excel at you that. Put, you, you put me you put me in a class that uh, I mean that's fine for Justin, but for me you're just like you know, throwing me under the bus there. <laughs> it's a it's a long bus, trust me. <laughs> Thanks. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, did you know that UC Davis is the only accredited four year brewing school school in the U.S. And uh, Dr. Bamforth is a fellow of the Institute of Brewing and the fellow of the Institute of Biology. He's the editor in chief of the Journal of the American Society of Brewing Chemists and a member, a member of the editorial board of the uh, Journal of the Institute of Brewing and um, Technical Quarterly uh, Journal for, of the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. So he knows his shit. He does. He's the author of hundreds of papers and several books yeah. on brewing. He's highly respected. And a particular passion of his is oxidation and flavor stability, which mm-hmm. made him an ideal person to have on this particular show. Great. So I think I think everyone will really enjoy this. I know I, I learned a lot. Hit it. Uh, welcome. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. I, Dr. Banforth, you've been, or I'll call you Charlie. Call Charlie, won't you? It's so much easier. <laughs> yeah. Um, so throughout your brewing career, you've tackled a number of uh, different topics. I mean, you've published on uh, pH and enzymes and foam, and uh, but qu- done quite a bit with oxidation, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, we, we cover a fairly wide area, you know. My, my current area is uh, is health and, and why beer is good for you in moderation and so on. But, but yeah, we've, we've, ad- we've addressed a whole bunch of different stuff. But but oxidation and, and staling, I, I often say, you know, it's the biggest technical challenge still facing brewers, whether they are small brewers or... Or, or big companies, you know, the, you know, trying to control the the flavor stability of beer is the biggest technical challenge that remains, really. Hmm. And I, I hope, I think it'll keep people gainfully employed doing the research for a, a good number of years. Yeah. 
Uh, probably will. I know there's uh, certainly a lot of different aspects to investigate. Yeah, um, it's tremendously complicated, you know, because so many of the of the the things that you, you know, the things that contribute to flavor um, are present at such low levels. And you really want to get a get a change in the level of, of a few of them, even just one of them, that you can detect at such very low levels that that that, that basically is flavor instability. You know, uh, mm-hmm. assuming that is that what you're looking for is 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 stability, and you're looking for consistency. So it's not like you know haze where where you know the, the things that make beer go hazy are present in fairly sizable quantities. You know, with flavor stability, the, the changes can be at, at, at tiny levels of uh, of some of these substances. Parts per billion and so on. Yeah. Parts per billion, or you know, one or two instances parts per trillion, but certainly the parts oh. per billion level. You know, so it really uh, it ain't easy. And not only that, you know, with with something like haze, the, the, you know, the, there's a relatively small number of things that make beer go hazy. You know, proteins and polyphenols and carbohydrates and so on. But with with flavor, there are so many different compounds that, that contribute to flavor that it's much more complicated. And, and, and when you're trying to control one of them, you know, it doesn't necessarily make it the same way in which you control all of them. So it just makes the thing so very complicated. So what we've been trying to do over the years, us and others as well, is to find sort of generic solutions, uh, ways of controlling uh, all of these things. So fairly general uh, approaches rather than trying to pick them off one at a time to, to, to try to go for the the generic solutions to this terrible problem. Hmm. Well, I understand uh, from reading some of your papers that there are uh, lots of uh, different compounds you can measure to that, that appear as a sign of uh, of staleness and beer instability um, are there are there a few that are I guess the leading candidates that define stale beer character well you know um, a lot of people would say uh, one in particular and, 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 and most work is concentrated on it it's called uh, noninal or trans to noninal or the chemists these days call it E to noninal and that's the the one that you see in most papers but that's, that's the cardboard sim- one right yeah that's the cardboard one. that's that really is too simplistic because you know I can I can open a bottle of noninal and yeah I smell cardboard but I can I can uh, taste stale beer that doesn't have very particularly high levels of E2 noninal in it. And I can taste other beers that got quite significant levels of e- noninal in it and they don't taste particularly stale. So it's 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 over simplistic to, to talk just about noninal. Noninal is a carbonyl compound, you know, it's got this uh, carbon linked to oxygen with a double bond. And you get that carbonyl group in many different um, compounds in beer. I had a guy working with me once, uh, uh, Mike Walters, uh, back in England years ago. He's an Aussie himself. And he he looked at the carbonyl compounds in, in beer, and there's lots of them, you know, tens, hundreds of these different carbonyl compounds. And some of them mm-hmm. are going to be important and some probably less important. And, you know, with different beers, uh, you know, what's important in one beer may not necessarily be the same in another beer. Just to just to add to all this terrible complexity. So ju- just to focus in on anything that makes Nuninal is 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 simplistic. I, I, if, if I, I was going to draw a generalization, I would say, well, it, it, you know, a lot of the compounds that you get in aged beer, they tend to be these carbonyl compounds. 
okay. contributing not only to, to cardboard but some of the other age characters as well you know um, you know metallic flavor in, in beer yeah it can be due to things like traces of iron but also due to a certain uh, carbonyl compound and some of these other age characters as well due to due to carbonyls okay. um, are, are, are what what sort of compounds uh, comprise carbonyls or or is it the other way around I guess I get they're melanoidin derived compounds that are considered these carbonyls? Well, they can come from all sorts of different uh, uh, sources. Um, the, the one that, you know, most people, again, the literature is focused on, uh, would be the oxidation of unsaturated fatty acids. Uh, and that is the the root. If you oxidize and break down um, linoleic acid, then yes, you do come to E2 noninol. Um and so a lot of people say, well, that's it. You know, that's that's the thing we should focus on, the oxidation of unsaturated fatty acids. But, you know, other compounds can break down to give uh, carbonyls. Uh, above all, uh, alcohols. I mean, you, oh. you think of um, what's the immediate precursor of uh, ethyl alcohol, ethanol, alcohol in beer, and it's acetaldehyde, you know. And it works yeah. the other way around as well, you know. And that's a carbonyl compound. Acetaldehyde is a carbonyl compound. Okay. And so, and so you can get the degradation of higher alcohols um, to give uh, carbonyl compounds. There's a guy, oh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, a guy called Hashimoto working with Kirin in Japan, and he worked on this uh, oxidation of higher alcohols, and he actually showed uh, that it was catalyzed, it was speeded up by melanoidins. You know, the coloured compounds uh, from the Maillard reaction. Now, a lot of people say, well, these compounds are antioxidants. You know? And he showed that they actually catalyzed and promoted the oxidation of higher alcohols to produce carbonyls. And, and so that just, you know, it's typical of the complexity that we've got around here. Yeah. You know, amino acids, you know, um, amino acids in, in, uh, from the wort, any that survive into the beer, they can break down in, in something called the Strecker reaction um, to give uh, carbonyls called Strecker aldehydes and so on. And then you can get other uh, you can get one aldehyde reacting with another one, one carbonyl compound reacting with another one in something called an aldol condensation to make an even more complicated one, such as uh, E2-noninol. So all of these things okay. are going on, and, and, and I haven't even mentioned the, the breakdown of the, uh, the bitter acids, you know, the iso-alpha acids. If you, if you oh. store beer and you measure the uh, level of bitterness, the BU, in a beer, it goes down with time. And what's happening is the iso-alpha acids are breaking down to give um, some carbonyl compounds as well. All this is going on. It's uh, so just to talk about uh, oxidation of unsaturated fatty acids is is far too simple. You know, it's it's, okay. it's all happening. Now, it's I I guess chemically, it's also um, a, is it accurate to say that uh, a, I guess oxygen in and of itself is not necess or not necessarily part of the process. It can be a pre-oxidized or or a a melanoidin. Uh, yeah. catalyzing an oxidation-type reaction and, and to produce staling compounds, of which you said there's many. Yeah, I mean, the, in terms of flavor change, then, it's, it's much more complicated than just uh, reactions that involve oxygen. But okay. clearly, oxid, the, the oxidation state of um, the brew is, is important. Uh, 
you know, when you talk about oxidation, you're not necessarily just simply talking about the level of oxygen. You're talking about the, the relative degree of oxidation and reduction of, of your system. So over the years, people have talked about redox, and they've talked about if you've got an oxidizing environment or an oxidized system, um, then uh, you know, then that sort of oxidizing power can be can be transferred. So, for example, you could take a polyphenol and oxidize it, and you produce an oxidized polyphenol. So the oxygen has disappeared, but now you've got an oxidized polyphenol. What does that do? You know, it either drops out of solution, or maybe it could conceivably pass on the the oxidizing power to something else. You know, uh, the 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 proteins, the 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 thiol proteins, the gel proteins in uh, the grain, they can be oxidized and become oxidized. Um, and so, you've got all these different redox reactions taking place. So, it, it's strictly speaking, it's more accurate to talk about the the amount of uh, the redox potential, if you like, the amount of oxidation that's taking place. Clearly, oxygen itself uh, can uh, can have an impact. Um, but it tends to pass on the uh, the oxidizing potential to something else. The other thing I, I often talk about is the fact uh, that, you know, oxygen itself, uh, O2, the stuff we breathe, you know, isn't of itself desperately reactive. You know, we're, 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 I'm sitting here, you're sitting there in in 20% oxygen, and you know, it was so damn reactive, we'd, you know, we'd have gone stale before the end of this interview, you know. <laughs> um, and, and that's not happening, and that's because oxygen itself is not, desperately reactive and you've got to activate it first and you can activate it in various ways and one is by enzymes and the other way is by making it into these active forms of oxygen these so-called radicals and again you, you this is where you the, the metal ions things like iron and, and copper come in because they promote this formation of uh, radicals and, and these are the things that are really causing the damage generating i guess that you call them um hydroxyls and peroxides right yeah uh, the first one is superoxide which i, I think is a great name superoxide with a big s <laughs> on his chest and uh, then peroxide and then hydroxyl which is which is the most reactive um uh, radical has ever been identified it's the most reactive chemical thing ever identified it'll react with you know first thing it comes into contact with it'll it'll attack it um, and it's these radicals that, that whether it's in the finished beer or earlier on in the process um, that are going to be causing uh, many of the problems I see okay well I guess uh, I should bring it back to um our our homebrewing topic and um, preface this a little bit by saying that we've you know as amateur brewers we've come to understand uh, the detriment of oxygen in the package you know when we're bottling yeah. uh, we tell people not to aerate the beer at that point when they're transferring it to a bottle um, cap on foam to you know reduce the amount of oxygen in the package mm. but one one area of uh, controversy is, you know, how how important is uh, preventing uh, oxidation uh, of the hot wort before it's chilled? You know, when it's when it's in the mash, when it's being transferred to the boiler, uh, when it's being transferred from the boiler to the chiller, uh, and then into the fer- into the fermenter. Um, you know, what, what what stages do should we be? Uh, I guess aware of the potential for oxidation or the oxidation of uh, 
some of the some of the amino acids and proteins that you mentioned that can you know later catalyze uh, other uh, reactions. Yeah, and the answer is um, who knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and this is this is where so much of the research is, is is going on, and so where so much of the controversy is, and so much of the debate. And um, it's it's a really confused scenario. One of the problems you see, John, is that uh, it's a long way from malt to beer. Uh, there's a lot of stages go on in between, you know. And 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 you look at experiments that people have done, say in in the brew house, looking at uh, cutting down the limit, the amount of oxidation, how much oxygen creeps in. And then uh, you go right the way down and look at how they've evaluated that, and they've tasted the beer uh, right the way down, all these other processes that are perhaps not so well controlled have all taken place. And then they taste the beer, and they don't tell you exactly how they taste it. And, um, and you know, they report, well, you know, the, you know, on a scale of one to five, where one is fresh and five is stale, you know, they do these these precautions and they cut down the amount of air creeping into the system and before the precautions it was you know 3.6 and then afterwards it was 3.1 and you go whoop-de-doo you know I mean it's not dramatic and so you've got to really look critically at the way people have done this work and done these experiments reported them and you know when you look critically at it um, the evidence isn't desperately good um, intuitively, uh, you can you can make some surmises and, and you can observe individually what goes on in these various stages. Um, uh, whether in fact it has materially has a major impact on flavor stability in the finished product is is often debatable. Um, and but people have pushed it further and further back. You see, Every, I don't think there's anybody who would argue that uh, you know what you need to do is to keep the oxygen level in the finished product as low as possible. Everybody agrees with that. The lower the oxygen level in the bottle, the better. Everybody agrees totally with that. Okay. But you know, the beer still goes stale even when the oxygen level is comparatively low. You know, down at the you know the the, the part per billion level almost. You know, it still goes right. stale. So they say, well, there's something else. And so they go back and they've gone back. And of course, what the brewers always do, they go back and they blame the monster. And, <laughs> and it's reached that stage now. You know, so they're talking about this enzyme like oxygenase. In the malt, which is sort of predisposing the malt to give stale beer. Now, if that's true, you know, the, 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 you know, there's very little hope. And the, the hope that people have got these days is they're using um, barley that have been bred not to have this enzyme. Okay, and they're like saying, the, sorry, like the yeah. clarity barley. Yeah, it's the same, the equivalent thing. Only this one, it has not got this enzyme like oxygenase. And they say, well, you know. It gives fresher beer. Well, you know, the, ex- the evidence that I've looked at, you know, it's not dramatic. Yeah. And, a couple months and, later, it's still stale, huh? Yeah, it's still stale. And why is it still stale? Because there are other compounds that come from other reactions that are causing a problem. You see, if you if you conquered lipoxygenase and, and you say, you know, it's just not working, then you've still got the amino acid breakdown and the higher alcohol breakdown and the isoalpha acid breakdown down and so on. 
you know, and nobody in their right minds would say, well, okay, we'll, we'll sort our ISO off or acid breakdown. We'll, we'll just not put bitterness into the product. You know, I mean, that would be very silly. Or you know, let's see if we can do away with amino acids. You know, the, the yeast ain't going to like that. And so <laughs> but there's all these other reactions taking place, and, 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 and that's why it's naive to think, well, you can control lipid oxidation, the oxidation of unsaturated fatty acids. It's naive to think that that will give you um, perfectly fresh beer. It won't. It's only one step, and that's why you've got to have generic solutions. So, oh, I see. Um, so, you know, it's absolutely true. There is an enzyme present in malt called lipoxygenase, and um, it will oxidize unsaturated fatty acids. No question, it does. Um, and uh, can that happen in a mash? Yes, of course it can. The more oxygen you've got available uh, to it, then um, the greater is the chance that it will happen. But the enzyme is sensitive to heat, and that's why um, people who propose uh, the importance of lipoxygenase, they say that you know, it's advantageous to mash in at the highest possible temperature you can uh, to prevent this enzyme from working. That's why they talk about well-modified malts and infusion mashes coming in at... Yeah, forgive me, I, I still always talk in terms of Celsius, but, you know, 65 degrees Celsius, so what's that, 149 Fahrenheit. Right. Um, so that, that cuts down the risk of this enzyme working. And, and sure, if you minimize the amount of oxygen there, then um, clearly that will also help. Um, but even if you eliminate this uh, this uh, enzyme, you know, the oxygen can still react with unsaturated fatty acids non-enzymically, particularly if you've got copper around the place, you've got a copper brew house, well, there you go, um, and traces of iron and so on. So that, that can still happen as well. But, you know, if you cut down the amount of oxygen, that will cut down either of those roots to oxidize unsaturated fatty acids. But, you know, the oxygen can react with other things as well. And uh, we now know that oxygen reacts with these gel proteins to to uh, to cross-link them, and that um, okay. that that causes the sort of the, the you know the sticky gel formation, the 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 tie, the, the, the oh the yes, the, the top yeah. dough, yes, yeah, okay. and that's 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 a, an oxidation phenomenon. Um, and when that happens, what you produce is the traces of hydrogen peroxide, which is a very active form of oxygen. But there are enzymes present in the malt called peroxidases, and they take that hydrogen peroxide very quickly, and these enzymes are very tolerant of heat, heat-stable, and they react this peroxide with um, polyphenols, and, and, and so you oxidize the polyphenols, and, and in turn they stick onto proteins and, and give you more cloudy wort. Um, okay. and, and so all of that's going on as well. They're also giving you an increased color. So there's no question that, you know, you, if you get oxygen in your, in your mash, you, you run the risk of, of building up color, which is a problem if you've got very pale, if you're after very pale words for a, a sure. very gently colored lager or something. Uh, you've got this increased uh, turbidity, which is actually good news for downstream uh, hay stability because you, you're taking right. a, proteins and polyphenols there um, and, but you you know you've also got these not terribly well defined flavor changes taking place you know you've got to so you've got to look experientially at what you uh, what you uh, see years ago I was a quality manager in uh, one of the bass breweries um, in the UK uh, the brewery near Liverpool and we, um, I'm, I'm segueing, I'm digressing slightly. <laughs> it's now, all right. But, um, um, 
we we brewed Carling Black Label, uh, and Carling, uh, I think it still is, but certainly at the time it was the biggest selling brand of beer in the UK, and we brewed it in six or seven different breweries. And ours was the beer that uh, everybody said, uh, which is the you know the Runcorn beer, uh, you know, in these blind tastings, and they could okay. identify it every time, and it's because it was harsh and grainy. And they said to me that uh, the quality manager and the head brewer Neil told me, you've got to clean it up. So we actually did clean it up. And what we did was we, we cut down the amount of oxidation in the in the brew house. It wasn't influencing flavor stability. But it was influencing this grainy, harsh character. We did various things. Okay. Um, and cleaned it up. And headquarters said, that's marvelous. We've now got a superb match. You probably, in fact, it's probably the best calling black label in the group. Uh, but our customers started sending it back you know the people we were sending the beer to in the trade they didn't like it anymore yeah. uh, so the importance of this is to say you know what people want and what the brewer thinks is right and not necessarily the same thing yeah you know That's why we've um, never gone gone away from the green bottles <laughs> I don't want to get onto the subject of green bottles. I, I could never understand anybody who wants to lick the rear end of a skunk but that's that's another story um, but um, but but, you know, when you talk about flavor stability, you, you quickly, if you're not careful, go into the realms of philosophy about what is right and what is wrong. Um, uh, and, you know, I've been to many places in the world where the beer is inherently stale. And that's mm-hmm. the way they like it. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, what you've got to do is make sure you always deliver it in the same form. You know, that's the... That's the argument that 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 you. Uh, I, I, we're going a long way from the brew house now, for which I apologise. But you know, the argument is, you know, what you give the customer is what the customer wants, and the customer wants cardboard flavoured beer, flavored beer. Then, for goodness' sake, make sure they get it every time. The, the worst sin in the world is to have <laughs> the same product. Uh, uh, one, one batch of it is fresh, one stale. You know, who knows what they're supposed to taste like? You mentioned uh-huh. the beer in green glass bottles. A number of times, people have said to me, "What the hell is it supposed to taste like?" Uh, and that's a terrible thing. You know, you should you should always know what the product is supposed to taste like, um, and and try to achieve that degree of consistency. So back to the, the brew house, we actually did, you know, experientially found we we could we could clean up the the fresh flavour by cutting down the amount of oxidation uh, that was taking place. Um, and one of the things we did there was actually um, uh, not attend to oxidation. We also attended to the vigor of the boil. Uh, a really uh, vigorous boil. There's this balance between heat stress, but also of purging of volatiles, purging of some of these okay. oxidized components. So, you know, the other argument is that you can have um, oxidation in the mash. Um, but if you have, you know, one argument is, well, the more you promote it, uh, that could be a good thing because if you can then get rid of the, uh, the, the the oxidized products by perhaps boiling them off to you know volatilizing them, like like in the you, hot breaker. Well, you know the, the you know you're actually getting a, a you know one of the purposes of the the kettle boil the, the copper boil is is volatilization. So if you if you're producing volatile materials and uh, then by you know a vigorous boil you can purge some of them off. Um, you know, the counter-argument is the more you, you heat, then uh, the greater is the risk of, of, of thermal uh, damage and the development of, of some heat stress, uh, which, okay. which is, is not going to necessarily be good for flavor as well. 
You know, we, again, if I can go back to Bath, we don't mind me giving you a couple of anecdotes. Um, we, we actually did quite a lot of work on trying to cut down uh, oxidation in, in the brew house. In, in our pilot brewery, when I was a research manager in Burton on Trent, we tried all sorts of things, and none of it was desperately exciting. We, we, you know, we put things like ascorbic acid, vitamin C into the mash, didn't have a blindest bit of effect. Um, but we also put um, SO2, metabisulfite, um, I don't know what you guys call it, and they, they yeah, these Camden tablets or sodium. Yeah, those, those are, yeah, we put those in uh, because SO2. Um, that's one of the potential generic solutions. You know, uh, SO2 binds to carbonyl compounds, and and it sticks onto them and and, and basically makes them non non flavorful. So if the brewing industry in this country was prepared to use SO2 in the finished product, then that's one of the generic solutions because all these carbonyl compounds would bind on. Of course, there's a temperamental reluctance to do that because if you have more than uh, 10 parts per million or 10 milligrams per liter of SO2 in the beer, you've got to declare it, you know. Um, it's okay if you're just for beer at home, but if you're going to market it, then you've got to put on the label, contain sulfites, you know. It's okay. It's all, yeah. all, all very well for the world of wine, but, you know, brewers don't want to do that. Like the wine guys have that sort of yeah. dirty labeling. Yeah. Um, anyway, we, we actually... Uh, so well, what happens if you cut down the amount of oxidation and buy some of these things upstream? Um, well, that'd be a good thing. So we put SO2 in, and we got, we got some interesting results. One of the brewers, um, unbeknown to anybody, um, took it upon himself to do that experiment himself in the brewery, uh, in a commercial brewery, and he got the beer that tasted like uh, rotten eggs. And what had happened was this SO2 upstream had been taken by the yeast and converted to hydrogen sulfide. Oh, yeah. And his beer tasted of rotten eggs. Um, and the reason was that, that in our pilot brewery, we had a little bit of copper pipe. Uh, and copper, of course, is a two-edged sword. One, one, on the one hand, it sort of leaks out and it, it oxidizes and activates the oxygen and causes a problem. But also the copper will bind onto the sulfide and, and stop the eggy flavor. Uh, in his brewery, beautiful gleaming, gleaming stainless steel brewery, he didn't have any copper, and therefore he got rotten eggs. Um, they didn't sack him. They, they they turned him into a quality control manager instead. Um, <laughs> Promote him, yes, of course. Yes, <laughs> they can pay for his crime. Um, so where was I going with all that? Well, the answer is, you know, we tried all sorts in the brew house, and... Um, you know, sometimes you get interesting results which suggest there's an impact, and just as often as not, you 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 don't get an impact. And you see, because there's a lot of things that happen downstream of the brew house, and probably the most important thing that happens is you put some yeast in, and that's a hell of a good way to uh, to clean up uh, stale flavors. I see. And does it follow that if? If the fermentation is you know sluggish or poor, then uh, that job would not be done as well. Yeah, um, you know yeast. Well, I've already mentioned one reaction it does very well, which is convert acetaldehyde into alcohol. Right. That's uh, that's an example of taking a carbonyl compound and converting it into a higher alcohol and uh, or into an alcohol, and the alcohols have much got a much higher fla- um, flavor thresholds than the aldehyde. So. It can also take other aldehydes as well. It can take noninol and uh, reduce that to an alcohol. And it can take all these carbonyl compounds, if you give it a chance, and take them out of harm's way. Um, you know, you can take stale beer and you can flow it through a, an immobilized column of yeast and the yeast will clean it up. 
Um, yeast is a great cleanser, you know. It's it's terrific at doing it. So, you know, another argument is, well, who gives a rat's ass about how much oxidation you got in the brew house because the yeast is going to clean it up anyway. Oh, um, there's a well-known um, a brewing company, which I won't name, but has a process whereby they um, bubble air through hot work. Um, it's uh, in, in the stripping process. Uh-huh. And they do it, uh, and, and they do it to actually purge off um, things like dimethyl sulfide, DMS, um, because they're looking for this gently flavored product, and um, and they want to, to purge off this, this volatile. Now, you know, if you read all the scientific literature on oxidation and hot side aeration and all these things, you know, that of itself, you know, bubbling air through boiling wood, a hot, yeah. very, very hot wood, is, you know, it's counterintuitive. And the fact is that that company and that beer is probably the freshest beer in the world. And it's, mm. and it's unforgiving as well because, you know, it's, you've got a really dark, heavy, robust stout. You can hide some defects in it, but you can't hide That's right. a defect in a, a gently, subtly flavored North American lager. And yet there they are, bubbling this, this air through, and of course what happens is, it, it, two things, one is, I, I believe that any oxidation that's taking place, they're, they're, they're purging off these carbonyls, they're bubbling them away as well, almost as they form, to produce them, yeah. But the second thing is, then they, they, they put yeast in, and, you know, good, healthy yeast that is vigorously able to ferment and to produce the alcohol and also to oxidize, oh sorry, to reduce uh, some of these uh, some of these carbonyl compounds. So that is the reason I, I'm, I'm fully uh, convinced. That is the reason why it's not a, a detrimental thing to to have uh, excessive aeration upstream when it comes to flavor instability. You know, and that's why I, I'm, I'm I'm very I'm always very critical, not critical, but dubious and 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 sure. uh, curious when I read papers where they are arguing that uh, upstream uh, oxidation is, is the cause of, of stay on the downstream, I, it's, uh, I, I need to be convinced. Okay. Well, that's, that's very interesting. It, it occurred to me as you were describing the, the stripping process, mm-hmm. um, would, I guess, would the temperature of the wort that they're doing that at, I mean, if it's near boiling and they're, when they're uh, sending the air through, would that be uh, different, say, than bubbling air through the wort or agitating the mash when it's uh, only at around 120 to 140 degrees? Or would it well, be a small difference? Chemical. Well, you know, the, the, the argument that those those people who propose the importance of um, uh, lipoxygenase, they would say that at, you know, 120 Fahrenheit, um, 50 Celsius or whatever, then that's, that's you're still going to have enzymic action now, and you're going to produce, um, you're going to take these uh, unsaturated fatty acids and produce them into hydroperoxide. And the argument goes that, that these things carry through um, into the, the downstream, and they will break down in the in the finished product. That, that's how they would argue uh, that. Um, you know, I'm I, I'm dubious about okay. that. Um, okay. I, I really am dubious. There's another argument that that um, some people put forward, and that is. Um, that um, yes, you do produce these uh, carbonyl compounds um, in the mash, 
um, but they are not reduced by the yeast. They're not taken away by the yeast for this reason. It's because they stick on to other things. Um, and uh, one of the uh, there's, there's a, a woman uh, in, in in Belgium in Leuven, um, uh, and she ad, uh, advocates the fact that she says these materials stick onto proteins. Uh, some people think it's SO2 that is actually present in the uh, sulfur dioxide that's present in the mash, uh, which binds onto these things, carries it through through the fermenter. Mm-hmm. The yeast doesn't touch it then, and then it gets into the finished beer, and then slowly uh, break these complexes break down in the finished product to release the um, stale compound. You know that's another argument that uh, okay. some people uh, have to play uh, and, and put into the equation. You know, it, it, all of these things are interesting, um, but again, it, it comes back to this whole the complexity of the fact that, I mean, wort is, is a soup full of all sorts of stuff, all sorts of changes taking place, all sorts of interactions. So, you know, you know, there's, you, know you could argue uh, uh, using paper chemistry that these all of these things are important. At the end of the day, I, I think the acid test um, is, is what is generic uh, that actually you can do to slow down these reactions in the finished product, uh, and, and that is where I, I always start. And I was I was talking a few years ago to uh, an MBA meeting in Milwaukee, and talking about uh, you know I stood up and talked about you know improving flavor stability, and I think they were all expect, expecting me to come out with some fancy new theory and some some magic bullet which was going to. Sure. Solve yeah. the problem. And what I said was, you know, um, the two things you need, three things you need to do. One is think about SO2, but I know you won't uh, in the finished product. Uh, but the other two things are oxygen level as low as possible and keep the finished beer as cold as possible. Um, and they were really disappointed with that. You know, they thought there was something yeah. smart I was going to say about upstream and so on. Yeah. And, and they said, well, what, what do you say to people who have invested all this money in new brew houses that cut down the amount of oxygen? Uh, and, you know, brew, brew house manufacturers are going out of their way to, to find ways of minimizing oxygen uptake in the brew house. And I said, well, in my opinion, um, until such time as you've bought the latest in packaging equipment, and you've got you know, your packaging systems that will allow the lowest possible oxygen level, uh, then you're just wasting your money. And, yes. and quite honestly, if you're a commercial brewer and you're shipping your beer around, if, you're, if you don't have control over the temperature of the, finish, uh, the beer in the finished bottle, you know, you, you just... It's a, it's a joke, you know, because you know the damage is going to be done in the in the finished product if it goes to too high a temperature, irrespective of what you've done in the brew house. Um, okay. So, so you know, you've got to start at the at the back end of the you know downstream, and then once you've you've done everything you can possibly do downstream, now is the time to start tweaking and, and working back and working back. But I, you know, I wouldn't invest my next year's salary and say. Uh, outside aeration is 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 critical. I, I, just, I, I know that uh, keeping the beer as cold as possible is 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 advantageous, terribly terribly advantageous. And probably that and the oxygen level in the finished product, the two biggest factors, overwhelmingly so, in okay. terms of controlling flavor stability. So everything else is kind of a molehill compared to temperature and and packaging. Well, yeah, you know, I. I I I I remember it's once I, I'm telling you another little anecdote. Now I, I never send my PowerPoint presentations in advance of uh, meetings ever. Ever since I went off to a meeting, I, and uh, 
I was going to Denver and they asked me to send my PowerPoint presentation in advance. And I, I have a slide which shows a guy called Arrhenius, who's a famous chemist from years ago, who looked at the relationship of heat to, um, to chemical reactions. And I, I was looking at the audience and I said, well, this slide shows my hero. And everybody burst out laughing and somebody had swapped the picture of Arrhenius for Bart Simpson, <laughs> uh, which is why I never, never do that. Uh, but anyway, Arrhenius is my hero. And what Arrhenius uh, showed was that every 10 degrees Celsius uh, rise in temperature, um, then a chemical reaction will go two to three times faster. Okay, so let, let's say that you've got a beer which is at uh, room temperature. That's, I, I know everybody over here thinks about Fahrenheit, but I'm still, um, I'm, I'm still in Celsius mode. So it's 20 degrees Celsius, okay? So you're at uh, 70 Fahrenheit, okay? Um, and let's say that it, it lasts about three months. Then if you raise the temperature to 30 degrees Celsius, so you raise it to 86 Fahrenheit, then it'll, it'll stale between two and three times faster. Okay. One month, yeah. So now you're down to a month. Um, and then if you go to 40 degrees Celsius, then you go two to three, which is uh, 104 Fahrenheit, you go to uh, two to three times faster again. So now you're down, you know, in the, you know, a week, uh, a week and a bit, you know. Wow. Now Davis, in the middle of summer, you know, in my garage, it can easily reach 37, 40 degrees Celsius, you know. So the beer in there is lasting about a week, you know. And if I went to 60 <laughs> degrees Celsius, I'm one day. Wow. And and that's what we do in the laboratory to to force the the, the situation to speed up reactions and, and look at staling. For years, people have used either thirty degrees Celsius for a, for a month or sixty for one day, which fits in perfect with Arrhenius. Now, by the same token, if you go from twenty degrees Celsius down to ten, so you go to fifty Fahrenheit then I think it's two to three times slower. So instead of three months, you're now up to, you know, nine months. And if you go down to zero, you know, Celsius, or you go down to, you know, almost what's in your refrigerator, a little bit, then you're down at, you know, then you're way over a year. Now that's, you know, on the scale of things, that is so much more uh, dramatic than piddling around with you know little bits of hot side aeration. It, it's it's order of magnitude different. You know, of course it, it you know the big guys will tell you it costs a lot of money to ship beer around cold. You know, um, but you know the magnitude of the effect is out of all proportion with anything that you're going to achieve in the in the brew house. Okay, so the take home I'm getting here is that. We as as brewers can you know look at the upstream process. We can look at our mash, we you know and the agitation, and we can look at our siphoning and wort transfer. But you know, if we relax and you know and not get all wrapped up about those steps, but make sure to pitch you know a very healthy uh, pitch of yeast to the beer, yeah. have a good strong fermentation. The yeast will take care of most everything that we did upstream, yeah. and then then we ha- we, we uh, from there concentrate on uh, good packaging practice, uh, capping on foam, reducing you know oxygen in the bottle, or right. keg it and keep it in the refrigerator and keep it cool. Uh, then we've we've really. We're we're ahead of the game in terms of uh, our time investment into the beer. I would say so. Um, 
you know, people say, well, do you sort of disregard totally all this business about nicotine out of sedation? And my reply to that is, yeah, it, it, it probably is no, is no harm to do the sensible things. You know, if you're, you know, a commercial brewery, you've got a fairly big mash ton, you know, it, Rather than splash the stuff in from the top, you know, gentle fill from the bottom, the logical, common sense things, you know, cutting down the amount of oxidation from the perspective of of other aspects like color development and so on and so forth. You know, it's common sense. It doesn't, but, you know, making huge investments. You know, I've heard people talking about having you know, anaerobic brew houses, whether, you know, whether they've got brewers going in there with oxygen tanks on the back. I don't know what the hell they would have. <laughs> but, I mean, it seems faintly ridiculous, you know. But So I think, I think it makes sense to... Um, to do the sensible things, but you know, I wouldn't uh, invest in you know specially uh, malt varieties that have got lacking this enzyme and all this crap. You know, it's just silly. So I, I think you know, consistent good practice, yeah. Um, but but in terms of purging the grist and deaerating the water and all that stuff, that is you know, you know yeah, low priority, low priority. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, just, you know, as people staying healthy, you know, avoiding to getting sick, you yeah. know, doing basic common sense things like uh, washing your hands and not leaning into people that are sneezing. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, just uh, don't worry about it from there. I mean, it's, if yeah. you're going to get sick, it's going to be, it's going to happen. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier on that, you know, the, the, the lighter the flavor of the beer, the bigger the problem becomes. You know, so okay. if you've got a if you've got a fairly robust ale, and people say, well, you know, ales have got better flavor stability than lagers, and that's because they got all these Maillard reaction products which are mopping up the oxygen radicals as well. And I say, no, it's probably because they've actually got more flavor, and uh, you're hiding, <laughs> yeah, hiding the deterioration to a greater extent. You know, so you know it depends on on, on the beer. You know, um, in terms of it's 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 uh, it's basic uh, flavor um, pattern. It's, it's portfolio of flavors in there, and the, 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 the basically the more complex the flavor you've got, uh, then the greater the, the likelihood that you're going to mask um, uh, development of, of of staying for a, a longer period of time. Yeah, they'll have um, a higher threshold yeah. compared to the overall flavor of the beer. I see. Absolutely right. Absolutely hey, right. Hey, Charlie, if if I could jump in with a question just as the amateur in the room, and yeah. and John, maybe uh, you know you could help me too. Sure. I, I guess I don't understand what the difference is between me aerating my wort with pure oxygen just before I pitch yeast or just after I pitch yeast, because I know that that's what my yeast wants, mm-hmm. and aerating the wort upstream. Uh, I mean, I've understood your explanation um and certainly, John, your great summary at the end that if we pitch a healthy yeast, it's going to eat the oxygen we produce upstream anyway that we put in there. But do you see what I'm saying? Why isn't it all cleansed anyhow? I don't under- You see what I mean? I mean, I'm deliberately putting oxygen in when I when I ferment. Yeah, you're putting you're putting the oxygen into uh, 
immediate before the yeast for the simple reason that the yeast needs it and what the yeast is going to do straight away is scavenge you get it converted into its membrane materials its sterols particularly and its own unsaturated fatty acids I and mean, it's ironic that you know yeast needs to use oxygen to make unsaturated fatty acids and if you've got unsaturated fatty acids in work they are prone to oxidation so there's a it's an irony there if the oxygen is put in too soon then I'm not saying it's is nothing's going to happen to it. It is going to react with things. It's going to react with the gel proteins, and it's going to react with other things as well. Um, whether that's going to impact on flavor stability is is debatable. But oxygen upstream is not going to be available for the yeast to use uh, to make its membrane. So you do need to to, to provide that oxygen um, to the yeast, um, you know, um, before uh, so it's available to it to to, to really kick off its uh, its fermentation. One of the other things we did at, at Bass was actually to do experiments with directly oxygenating the the yeast. So instead of putting the oxygen in the wort, we say, well, you know, what's the oxygen needed for? It's not needed to, to go into the wort, but it need, it's needed by the yeast. Let's give it to the yeast directly. And there are a number of people still looking at that today, um, you know, it's, uh, pre-oxygenating the the yeast. Some people are actually talking about well, not even using oxygen. Why not give uh, lipids and, and and so on directly to the yeast and use those in, uh, directly. Um, so I'm not sure that answers your question. The oxygen is uh, oxygen is proactively essential in to to by the, uh, for the yeast to actually make its its membranes. And if you want good vigorous fermentation, you've got to make sure that you provide the yeast with the amount of oxygen it needs. So it's just, it's it's that when it happens upstream, uh, by the time I get to ferment, it's in a different form. By you saying yeah. it's it's unavailable to the yeast, then that does Correct. make sense to me. Okay. Correct. So the, the oxygen, if you put in the oxygen earlier on, uh, it, it is going to react with stuff. Yeah, okay. The, the moot point, the debate is, well, you know, if it reacts with some of these things, is it going to cause a problem later on? And, and my answer is, well, there's no evidence for that, but sure as heck, it isn't going to be available for the yeast. So you need to give the oxygen to the yeast as close as possible to when the yeast needs it. Okay, thank you. Okay. That's that's interesting. It raises a question I've had um, regarding uh, oxygenation of uh, wort. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of us homebrewers use uh, just pure air. We hook up an aquarium pump and a yeah. and a little air stone and drop it in the fermenter and bubble. You know, ordinary room air or filtered room air, I should say, uh, right. to the wort. Versus, and other people take a hook up an you know an oxygen cylinder and bubble mm-hmm. pure oxygen in. And in your opinion, is there any difference uh, in, uh, chemically? I mean, is pure oxygen going into the wort uh, more likely to oxidize you know wort compounds uh, um, than just plain air or? Well, I mean, basically, you you have got a you're putting in a higher concentration. The the you know I'm I'm not convinced it would uh, be a greater problem for the oxidation of the wood, but uh, what not a significant effect? Is, yeah. No, I uh, but mm-hmm. you know some it depends on the yeast how much the yeast needs. I mean, some yeasts need 
higher charges of oxygen than others. And you know, we, we, that's one of the great, not one of the, that's not great, but one of the remaining things that nobody has explained is why different yeast strains need different amounts of oxygen. Uh, some yeast, you know, they're quite happy with not even air saturation, whereas others are, are, are not happy with oxygen saturation, you know, uh, not many of those around, but, you know, some need oxygen saturation and some need air saturation and some need not even air saturation, and nobody knows why. Um, you know, m many brewers, certainly um, uh, smaller brewers, would err on the side of caution and they would um, put uh, over... Uh, you know, higher levels of oxygen in there than they need, simply to avoid any sticking fermentations or to, you know. The downside to that um, is that the more oxygen you give to the yeast, if, it, if you give it too much, then you'll actually get more yeast. Um, now, it probably doesn't matter on a very small scale, but on a, on a huge brewing scale, uh, averaged over a year, you know, if you produce too much yeast, uh, or yeast, you produce less beer. So, you know, you, you, you know, the carbon's got to go somewhere. Your sugar's got to go somewhere. They either go to yeast growth or they go into alcohol. And the more yeast growth you get, the less alcohol. Now, it doesn't really matter if you brew, you know, once a month, you know. Uh, but if you're brewing around the clock on very, very big scales, then it makes sense to get exactly the right amount of oxygen, not too little and not too much, just the right amount for the, for the, uh, the yeast. But, you know, um, as regards the difference between... Um, bubbling with oxygen or bubbling with air on flavor stability um, not important in my opinion okay good to know okay yeah it's I, all about opinion at the end of the day as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i can think of one or two people as a, a a chemist in uh in holland who uh you know he and i often rot in public over the relative importance of um, <laughs> their oxygenase you know and um uh, you know, it's in a reasonably amicable way, but uh, you know, I, uh, yeah. I, I know, I know that uh, it's it's what happens downstream that really matters. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that you know, oxygen can creep in in between the, the neck of the bottle and the and the cork as well. You know, it, uh, oh yeah, air, air can creep in there as well. So I mean, people poo-poo beer in cans, you know, but it's actually more stable than beer in bottles. That's right. That's right. I've what about That's the, uh, so Sierra Nevada is said to, uh, it's my station, I'm allowed to give plugs for actual breweries. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, they're said to have just switched their bottle cap to this new, uh, you know, an improved bottle cap. You know, you have anything, any opinion about that? Yeah, well, as far as I know, and Ken, who's uh, a friend of mine, um, he's very passionate about uh, flame stability. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, what Ken's done is to go back from uh, screw-off, twist-off can uh, lids, uh, crown corks, to pry-off. Right. The pry-off. That, that basically, and, that, and that's the reason he's done it. He is convinced, and um, and Ken is, you know, he's, he, when he's convinced about something, he's you know, usually on pretty good evidence. He's convinced that uh, going back is, is is good for the, the flavor life of, uh, of Sierra Nevada, and uh, so be it. And uh, that, sure. that is the reason why it's it's it's. You know, you would intuitively you would realize, you would know that uh, oxygen is going to get in, or air is going to get in more easily through a, a, a less r rigorously screwed on lid. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's what he's done, and um, he will have done it because he knows it to be right. So, and John, you had to see this question coming. Uh, for pro brewers, <laughs> then, um, 
Uh, are you an advocate as as uh, aluminum cans as a as a superior package, in, just in terms of oxygen? As long as the can is um, properly, you know, the internal surface is properly coated and lacquered and so on, then then in terms of flavor stability, then a can is superior to a bottle. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm you know I'm like anybody else. I I remember I was in a a restaurant in. Sydney, I think it was Australia, and the Chinese restaurant. He bought me beer in a can, and I thought it was it just looked awful, you know. I mean, so <laughs> <laughs> it just psychologically it was all wrong, even yeah. though I knew damn well it was, you know, it was perfectly going to be okay. But right. uh, but 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 stability-wise, um, oxygen-wise, um, then yeah, all things being equal, then the beer in the can is going to have a longer shelf life. Okay. Yeah, well, I can see one thing I need to do is uh, convince my wife that I need an additional beer fridge. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm absolutely right, you know? Yeah. I, I, and also to allow you to go, you know, to when you go buy beer, to you know, to do it frequently in relatively yeah. small quantities, but often. <laughs> that's that's another good way of looking at it. Yeah. As long as the supermarket's looking after the beer for you, mm-hmm. and keeping it cold and rotating it, you know, the logistics, turning it over. You know, I go to a restaurant in David, you know, and. You know, I look at the born on date, the beer I bought, you know, and it's, you know, it's out of date, you know. And what they're doing is, you know, the beer comes out the front and the stuff at the back just stays there and they just take out and they, they put the next batch in, in front of it on and they don't it, yeah. turn it around, you know. And the, you know, the rotation of the stock and all these things are so very important. All these logistics is, that's where you've got to start with the flavor stability. And if you haven't got all that sorted out and the rest is, you know, you might just forget the rest, you know, you just got to sort all that lot out. Wow. Well, this has been a very enlightening hour. Uh, okay. A lot of, I mean, I, I'm as an engineer, I, I like looking at the details, and, yeah. uh, and I guess I'm in my book and uh, writings, and so on, I've been preaching, you know, uh, caution upstream, and you know, limiting uh, mm-hmm. oxygen. It's, I guess, on the other hand, it's it's nice to know that uh, we can take steps downstream to mitigate uh, the yeah. steps upstream. Yeah. And uh, so this has been very, very enlightening for me. Very good. Pleased to be of service. Yeah. Okay. Pleasure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, Charlie, um, hopefully um, we can uh, get you on the program again sometime and uh, talk on another topic. Uh, I'm sure you're good for several. <laughs> well, we'll we, we do our best. Yeah. All right. right. Get me get, get me on the subject of telling people why beer is better than wine. That's that's what you want. Ah, yes. You know, in <laughs> fact, another a topic that uh, I recently saw, um, which uh, I was delighted in, was uh, the glycemic index of beer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the myth I, of the beer belly and the stupidity of the South Beach diet. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. That one sounds good to me, too. I want to do a show with you about that, Charlie. All right, that'd be great. <laughs> I get questions all the time about, uh, you know, should we drink light beer uh, on an, on another show that we do, and I just say, you know, you should have a, a handful of chips less on your night of drinking, <laughs> and it's the, you know, and then you can actually enjoy the beer you're drinking. Absolutely right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Charlie. Hey, John. Uh, good. good call on Charlie as a guest too, right? I- I'd love to have you back anytime on any topic, Charlie. All right, that'd be great. Give me a call sometime. <laughs> all right. We'll do. All right. Thank you Cheers. very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. What's good for the earth, good for your body, and great for your brew? Organic ingredients. 
This holiday season, the organic ingredient experts, Seven Bridges Co-op in awesome Santa Cruz, California, offers you the gift that keeps on giving to our planet. Sustainable, fair-wage ingredients to make the best organic homebrew you've ever had. There is a growing demand for organic products, and your choice to brew with them supports organic farmers worldwide. Brew organic, and you'll brew excellent beer that is free from chemical residues and genetically modified organisms, and you'll help contribute to a better world. If you're looking for organic ingredients, Seven Bridges offers a huge selection of USDA-certified kits and raw ingredients from 8 ounces to 50-pound sacks of grain, whole and pellet hops, and all the equipment you need. Seven Bridges, the organic homebrew experts since 1997. Visit www.breworganic.com. Did you know that every day a brewcaster goes to bed hungry? Did you know that that brewcaster is silently calling for the help of people just like you? Do you know that every day the unicorn and the rainbow have to blow sailors for loose change? For less than the cost of a half-calf, quad-shot, venti, extra-hot, soy milk, triple-pump, hazel, low-fat foam, double-cupped macchiato a day, you can help starving adults in Pacheco. Your love can be felt for as little as 7 cents a day. Visit thebrewingnetwork.com slash donate to sign up today for as little as $2 a month. Private first class in the BN Army. Buy your way up the ranks as corporal, sergeant, ranger, or colonel with an easy-to-do monthly donation that keeps brewcasters alive and your favorite internet radio station broadcasting. No donation is too small to help those in need. Can't you find it in your heart to share your love with a brewcaster? In return, you will enjoy the wealth of knowledge that comes with every episode of the session. The Jamil Show and Yes even that other show. Thank you for listening, and please sign up for your donation at thebrewingnetwork.com slash donate today. You're listening to The Brewing Network. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zanashev and John Palmer. Putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong. So, John, I thought that was a, an excellent interview with uh, Thank Mr. Bamford. I, I really like that one. I, I learned so much during that interview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things that I had you know questions on, or you know, you wonder in your mind how to rank them. You know, is this more important than that, and so on. To to get top not i mean state-of-the-art information from a well, guy you know like what that. the guy's talking about you yeah know, he's, he, 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 this isn't just a internet rumor that he's you know <laughs> right yeah you know, regurgitating it's this is this is based on scientific knowledge yeah of, he, of he writes so many articles for for the journals and uh you know it's just a world authority on on brewing you know when you read one of his uh, his peer-reviewed articles where he's summarizing everything that's known about beer ph or mm-hmm. you know summarizing haze or mm-hmm. foam mm-hmm. and you, you know you just you know you've got you know the the, the best word on mm-hmm. it and so it was it was really great for me to be able he to sit seems down like with a him great guy too he real, is. real friendly and yeah and nice he's going to be at the uh, homebrew conference in oakland in, That'll be uh, great. June 2009. If you haven't uh, uh, you know signed up for that yet, uh, you want to be a, a AHA member, of right. course. Yeah, uh, you can join the AHA through the Brewing Network, as a matter of fact, and yep. uh, the Brewing Network gets a, a couple of bucks off of that, and you you end up being uh, uh, get Zymergy Magazine, which you and I both uh, write for every once in a while, and right. uh, also uh, subscribe you get, to. Uh, 
you, you get that. You get a, a big discount on the uh, conference. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and we've, we've talked about the HA conference, you know, time to time in the past. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for anybody, any new members, you know, new listeners out there, uh, that is just one of the best times you can have as a brewer to go and Absolutely. hang out with other brewers. And uh, you get to, to listen to people like Dr. Charlie Bramforth and learn so much. It's amazing. Yeah, that's going to be a great one coming up. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Justin, do we have any questions from the chat room on on the, on this subject? Here? We don't. They were just listening intently to uh, Doctor <laughs> Bamford. We blew their minds. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, he really covered everything, didn't he? So, uh, no, not not a question to be had. Wow. <laughs> and you don't <laughs> have any questions ever, either. Ever freaking happened? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I thought still that you'd uh, you know come back and have more things to say, but he re- is really a well-rounded lecture. So, yeah, yeah. Well, just to kind of uh, summarize everything, yeah, give us a give us a recap of all right. So, uh, and that's that's the thing, uh, you know. What should we do, you know, practically as brewers? What 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 should we do as far as our process goes? How much should we worry? You know, what's what what's our our yeah. direct take from this? Well, the the thing I came away with is that, and I kind of mentioned this in the interview, is that you know when it comes to comes to oxidation and staling uh, a good comparison is you know getting sick catching a cold i mean the the fermentation of the beer a good strong fermentation is equivalent to like our immune system you know and it's going to cover you know 95 99 of everything we're exposed to upstream processes like you know uh, aerating the mash, you know, aerating the wort transfer, and so on. That that amounts to like you know, uh, you know, basic common sense, like washing your hands and and uh, you know, good good sanitary practices, you know, in your own, in your day to day life, and, you know, prevent getting sick. Um, and but you know, your immune system is going to take care of most of that for you. And in like when it comes to oxidation, hot side aeration, and beer staling, the fermentation is going to take care of that for you. It's going to it's going to clean up a lot of that oxidation that's happened upstream. So really, what you've got to be concerned about is practice you know good common sense control upstream. You know let's not let's not load you know the overload the boat. But when it um, what you really need to be concerned about is stuff downstream of fermentation. Uh, controlling aeration uh, in the package after fermentation, and then uh, keeping that fermented beer, you know, that that beer, keep it cool so that it, you know, doesn't uh, age from heat. And, you know, that's, you know, the same as when you're trying, you know, you got somebody at the office that's, you know, come in sick to work and they're coughing all over everything. And I think your analogy is just confusing. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, you know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to follow along here with the, the health thing. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, yeast infection, STDs, you know, maybe that's just the way my, my mind Well, works. your office, perhaps. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, my office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, I mean, there's, what it comes down to is that anything that happens upstream of fermentation mm-hmm. is uh, molehills or small potatoes. You practice common sense upstream of the fermentation. You know, let's not be foolish. But um, if you have a good, healthy fermentation, it's going to clean up most of what happened upstream. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to packaging your beer. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's oxidation. 
that's oxygen. You've got you want to minimize Different oxygen. Show. Oxy, you want to minimize <laughs> oxygen right. in the package, right. and you want to keep that beer cold right. or cool. Uh-huh. If it if it sits in a hot garage, it's going to oxidize faster. You know right. these staling reactions are going to occur. Mm-hmm. You can't prevent it. Right. And just my go back to my sick model. You are going to get sick at some point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you are going to catch an STD at some point. Yes. At least, yeah. at least uh, uh, some crabs or something. Yeah, at least in this crowd. So, um, <laughs> you know, you, you so you if uh, you practice good, you know, common sense upstream hygiene mm-hmm. uh, and sanitation. <laughs> Use a condom. <laughs> yeah, uh, have a good, strong, healthy immune system, or or a good, strong, fel- healthy fermentation. <laughs> yeah. Then you really only need to worry about you know uh, downstream packaging issues, oxidation. Uh, hot temperatures that will still definitely steal your beer, mm-hmm. or you know, once you've thrown the immune system out of the equation, if you just you know sleep around like uh, certain people might, <laughs> mm-hmm. then then yes, you probably like catch something. Jay Z, you should be loving this description because it goes to your uh, your lazy man philosophy. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah, really, yeah, what yeah, Doctor yeah, Bamforth has said is. Uh, Go ahead and be sensible about the beginning, right? You know, like you just said, uh, Palmer. You know, uh, take all the necessary precautions, but don't worry about it. Worry about the after the fact because uh, right. that's where you're going to run into trouble. The packaging, the bottling. You don't you don't take care of it there. That's what you should be paying attention to. So it really goes with your whole uh, less is more. JC. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. <laughs> you know? All right. So I, I get two two things to bring up. One is all right. Now, John, do do I interrupt you to a point where you don't cover the information that you're going to cover? No, I don't think so. And do I help you actually fill out the information that, you, you, that you're going to present? I ask questions yes, that, that, that will help you. Right? That is true. All right. So, so you people who think I'm interrupting John with <laughs> stupid-ass stuff, yes, I am. But it does not <laughs> prevent the information from coming out, okay? It's, it's entertainment for entertainment's sake. Yeah. In the end, nothing's going to keep Palmer yes. from coming out. I was, I was going to state that differently, but we'll go with that one. Okay. We'll go with that. That's right. I did have one more, and then we'll get to the, the question from the chat, the, okay. the, the late question from the chat. It's probably above. Uh, all right. So so it seems to me that, that, that the thing is, hot side aeration does exist, yes. right? You, you can oxidize various compounds in the mash, in the wort, and they could have a negative impact on on the beer, cause that is, staling. That is but, a fact. Yes. But the the thing is, so so you want to uh, as a brewer, you want to um, you know you don't want to be totally freaked out about it. Right. But it's okay to stir your mash. It's okay to you know do various things. You're not don't go nuts. You know, just you know regular stirring, gentle stirrings probably overly cautious normal how you maybe stir a mash would be fine or how right. you dough in right but if you're you know some automated tool that's like thrashing the thing would be too much that's right you know wash your hands but don't go overboard don't sanitize <laughs> right. everything you don't, don't need to burn your skin layer off with, yeah, uh, with acid right you don't need it's, to carry hand okay. sanitizer with you everywhere <laughs> like, and you know don't wipe off the keyboards and such and and all right so but the, but the only reason this doesn't matter is because you're going to have good fermentation practice now if you have crappy that fermentation practices if you're not pitching the right amount of clean healthy yeast mr that's right uh you are 
going to run into trouble. So you, what you want is a good, healthy fermentation, quality yeast products from, uh, uh, you know, the, the fine yeast companies out there. Right. And using, you know, you're not going to use, uh, you know, some minimal amount of bread yeast or something. You, you want to use, a, you know, good, good products, right. Uh, right pitching rates, uh, good, fer- you know, proper fermentation temperatures, things like that. Aeration, temperature, all the good things we preach. Right. All that stuff, you're going to get good, healthy fermentation. Uh, you're going to resolve any of the that hot side aeration, which it does exist, but it's not an issue in the beer because of decent fermentation. The, the fermentation, the yeast, clean that stuff up. You really don't have a problem. So don't go That's overboard. Right. Make sure you have good fermentation, and, and you're fine. So hot side aeration really should not be an issue for anybody as far as staling or flavor stability. Uh, really, really not a big deal. That's right. It, it is something to be aware of but is not something that's going to control your life. Great. Like STDs. All right. So, Justin, the, the, the question from the chat. Yeah. I'm not sure you guys are going to be able to handle this one, actually. We can handle a big one. <laughs> All right. Uh, the question is, uh, why did brewers around 1900 encourage hot side aeration for darkening and use two-hour boils with a 15% evaporation rate as a matter of course? What feature were they seeking? Is this a multiple choice? Me- melanoidin? <laughs> that's what I thought. Yeah, and that's kind of what the listeners were thinking, Cause, too. Because is- melanoidin formation requires uh, oxygen to some right. extent, doesn't it? Yeah. I, you know, it goes back, I think, Part of the part of the answer may be the Budweiser uh, practice, where they, which this was the company that Charlie didn't want to name, but they do uh, stripping, where they bubble air stripping. through hot wort, uh, boiling hot wort, to ev- you know to help uh, strip DMS precursors and other volatiles from the wort, yeah. which improves beer flavor stability downstream. Uh, you know, you're thinking, ah, you know, all that oxidation, they're they're dark definitely darkening the word they're definitely adding you know um or aiding melanoidin formation and darkening the word but a good strong healthy fermentation Again, cleans up the oxidative damage that that, that that may have occurred and leaves you with an overall a cleaner beer it's like penicillin yeah that's right really can clean up a lot of things fellas <laughs> so eat, eat moldy peanut <laughs> butter you, sandwiches when you got the drip yeah, yeah. <laughs> go ahead and eat that moldy bread when you're peeing brown, black, or bloody. Yeah. All right, everything else are just shill questions coming from the chat now, so I think they've oh, lost interest. Wow. All right. So. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think that's the show. I think, it's, I think it was a great show. I, Excellent. Like I said. You did a spectacular job with uh, Dr. Bamforth. Thank and, you. And our thanks to uh, uh, Charlie Bamforth for, for being on the show and... Uh, Really helping us out, understand, yeah. you know, uh, a if lot If you of- get a chance, come to the HA conference this summer. Yeah. He's going to be there. A lot of their notable brewers are going to be there. Dr. Michael Lewis is a possibility. Yeah, Clayton Cohn. Clayton Cohn, yeah. you know, really yeast expert. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be, be a, just a phenomenal conference, conference this summer. It's great beers, great uh, food, great people. Uh, one of the best things. If you get a chance, uh, go to the Brewing Network store. Take a look. Uh, we got signed copies of Brewing Classic Styles, How to Brew. We got Brew Strong shirts. There's uh, the Hop Grenade shirts and hoodies. Those are really popular. Great stuff. I love mine. I, I wear it all the time. And uh, you know, if you get a chance, you can uh, uh, sign up for the AHA. You can sign up for a, a brew, uh, brew Your Own. Uh, John and I right. both uh, write for that. 
And uh, the next show coming up is going to be on carbonation. Everything about carbonation. How to get proper levels of carbonation. How to... Uh, what the heck we're talking about when we say volumes Volumes of CO2, of CO2 things right. like that. Yeah, it's going to be a good show. I think um, this, again, was an excellent show. And I think you did a, a grand job with uh, Dr. Ben for it. Thank you. All right. So, thanks for listening. And Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong, everybody. Thank you.